Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukier, the data editor and your host of Babbage. On today's show, we'll delve into the world of cryopreservation. Well, that's freezing organs, and we're also going to look at how to detect doping in racehorses. With me here today to discuss these topics are Jason Palmer, a science correspondent. Hello, Jason. Hello. And Matt Kaplan, another one of our science correspondents. Hello, Matt. Hello there. Hey. So, Jason, let's start with you and cryopreservation. First, tell us what that is. That is effectively the freezing of organs, is what we're talking about, and not to be confused with cryonics, very similar sounding word, which is about freezing people after they're dead and then bringing them back to life, perhaps when their their particular malady is cured. This is entirely different. We're just talking about organs. Okay, so we're talking about organs, but wait. Some animals do freeze and thaw. It's true. Uh, nature has cracked this problem for uh, there are uh, frogs, uh, there are insects that freeze absolutely solid in the winter, perhaps several times a season, and then do come back to life. And in a sense, this is connected to the same kind of uh, hibernation that bears and some mammals do. Right? It's all kind of slowing down the metabolism uh, during a period of you know during a period of cold. So, does this technology learn from nature or do something different? Well, it's a mix of things. Um, I've been looking into this because there seems to be a, a real sort of ferment of, of research into this going on, and some of it is trying to, to look into the, the various molecular pathways, for instance, the, the changes and changes in genes and in proteins that go on in some of these some of these creatures. But for the most part, it's kind of going the other way. The other way, it's kind of going. From from the top down. We take an, an organ, for instance, from uh, someone who has recently died. We try to preserve it and then transplant it into someone who needs it. This is incredibly fraught because the techniques that exist for doing that for human organs are really quite limited. It's not doing this freezing thing. It's just kind of keeping it cold. That slows down the metabolism some, but not enough to gain more than, say, well, it depends on the uh, on the organ, but let's say under a day. And the new research, what does that do? Well, the new research takes all kinds of forms, but ultimately, the sort of the ultimate goal is to be able to to plunge this stuff into to liquid nitrogen and keep it frozen solid, transportable around the country, around the world, and so on, and do organ banking. For how long would you be holding the organ until it gets put back into a body? If you're able to do that liquid nitrogen stuff indefinitely, but honestly, the, the the problem of a shortage of organs and sort of bad donor organ matching and what have you would be solved even if that could be brought up to a week or, or a month. That would solve lots of the problems. The The World Health Organization estimates that only 10% of the global need for transplantable organs is being met. That could easily be raised enormously even by getting up to just a week. This sounds really interesting. Matt, you want to come Yeah, in? I was curious because when you freeze human tissues, there's water in our skin and our, our organs. Doesn't that form crystals that cause the cells to rupture? How do, how do you get around that? That's actually one of the, the principal problems. Um, and in fact, the creatures that can do this do so by kind of exchanging some of their water for, for instance, glucose. Oh. These, these sort of chains of changes in the, in the genes and so on. A whole cascade of different effects, but largely it's just getting rid of some of the water. It's basically the same thing you do, for instance, with, uh, with ice cream. You throw a bunch of salt in there to, to depress the, oh. the freezing temperature. It's doing the same sort of thing. And there are plenty of researchers who are kind of trying to do that same sort of thing using what they call cryoprotectants. Initially that was sugars like glucose and so on, but now it's sort of these cocktails of different chemicals that behave well under you know, extreme freezing temperatures. So what are they doing? 
doing. They're pumping these cryoprotectants into the organ before they put it into the deep freeze so that it's ready to take that colder temperature? Yeah, exactly. But the, the particulars of this, it gets incredibly complicated because, again, there are cocktails of these things. There are protocols for, you know, which chemical to put in when and how fast to freeze, go down to what temperature, hold it there for how long. It's, a, it's an incredible optimization problem. And that depends on the organ itself, right? Because different organs will have different properties. Exactly. And are made up of different tissues. Uh, you know, the inside of an intestine, for instance, looks very different from the outside. The, these things freeze at different rates. And it's not only that problem. It's also the thawing, right? At, any, at every stage, you've got this problem of what happens when you drop an ice cube into water. It cracks, right? You don't want that to happen with your kidney. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair point. So how far are we from actually deploying this? Is this still early bench work in the lab or is this close to getting ready for prime time? Well, um, I'm inclined to think from what I've been seeing that uh, there's kind of a, a kink in the curve of development. What the problem has been up until now is that this brings in a whole bunch of different kinds of researchers, right? You've got your mechanical engineers worrying about the cracking ice cubes. You've got your food scientists who know things about ice crystals. You've got your transplant surgeons who know what they need to receive, right? Um, and all of these people applying for funding, kind of, they, they don't present a united front to the funders. Mm. There's plenty of, of innovation going on, but not a whole lot of funding um, and not a whole lot of unity. And what happened a few years ago was the institution of what's called the Organ Preservation Alliance, a, a nonprofit started up by some, some bright sparks who saw this potential, this enormous public health potential, and uh, got the sense that the, the research really is going somewhere, but realized that the funders didn't see this as sort of a, a, a united kind of goal, but kind of piecemeal research. Since they got on board, brought all of these researchers together into the same room to talk to each other, to sort of parade them in front of the funding bodies, including the... Uh, the American Department of Defense and uh, NIH, the National Institutes of Health, mm. things have gotten much better, much faster. It looks as if this is kind of a snowball effect. So, Jason, if, if we learn and we can apply this to kidneys and to other organs, why couldn't we theoretically apply it to brains too? The brain presents an entirely different set of challenges. And again, the, the, the very notion of cryonics, this kind of ability to, to freeze someone wholesale, you know, presumably what we're really talking about there is not somebody wanting to save their, you know, their, their foot or their arm or their heart. It really is their brain. There are a lot of issues there, both about how to you know, define death and to figure out how much damage a brain might be able to withstand. You know, if you do this kind of cryopreservation and bring back a kidney, there's a certain amount of healing that goes on that the body can sort of withstand. A lot of these a lot of the research is going into figuring out how much the body can take care of this and we can get the mechanical engineers off the job. The brain leaves a very open question there. Okay, so I, t I take your answer as a yes, it's possible, and I, I think you'll I think you'll accept no other answer than that. <laughs> I'm not sure if the researchers would agree. Yeah, no, I recognize that it's a, it's a little bit trickier. So let me end with a question on policy. One thing I don't understand is that it always seemed to me that there was always more demand for organs than there were organs to fill it, so that with the waiting list, as soon as we had a hot, wet organ, we could put it into someone. So why is it that we actually solve a market need if we are able to preserve it over time? It's just about geography, proximity, right? Uh, a, a perfectly viable kidney that uh, becomes available on one coast, if the, the donor match is on the other coast, you are not going to get that kidney there in place. There are plenty of organs that are donatable. There are some policy questions around, you know, presumed consent and things like this, but the supply, I think, is not all that limited. The issue is gathering those and, and saving them instead of, you know, uh, considering it a 12-hour proposition. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Matt, now on to you. This week, you're writing about racehorses and doping. So what's the problem? Well, just like in human athletics, where there's a lot of money made by folks who are going to be winning competitions, in the world of racehorsing, there's a serious interest in people being able to win those races. And if they can dope their horse to be just that much faster than the other horses on the course, then it's certainly worth their while to try to cheat. 
So we've been seeing this for a really long time. It started in the 1980s. Folks, similar to in human athletics, started doping up their horses with testosterone. It's a, an androgenic uh, steroid that causes muscles to be built more solidly and more quickly. And so if you have a bodybuilder who takes testosterone, they're going to have bigger muscles. Same thing with a stallion. You dose them up on testosterone, they're going to get more muscular, be able to go that much faster. So in human doping, we have tests that we can perform to identify if it's taking place. Why don't we just apply those tests to the horses? They were applied in the 1980s, and stallions got caught dead in their tracks. Really easy to catch the stallions because you could look at the stallions and say, look, this, this testosterone is different from the testosterone produced naturally by the stallion. So uh, this person's been cheating because this is artificially created testosterone or any other hormone that does the same sort of thing with muscle building. The, the place where things have really gone off the rockers is actually with geldings because many racehorse males are robbed of their testicles and so they are racing without testes. And so how do you boost an animal that doesn't have testicles with androgenic steroids that allow them to be able to build muscle mass more completely? And that's the place where people have been cheating. Okay, uh, so how does the technology work? The cheating technology that are, is being made use of is making use of testosterone produced by the adrenal glands, which is located just, they're just next to the kidneys. Kidneys seem to be a common theme today. <laughs> and they don't produce a lot of testosterone. And most of that testosterone that's produced gets converted over by compounds within the body called aromatase into estrogen, which does you no good if you're looking to build up a bunch of muscles. Just the opposite, in fact. <laughs> yeah. So what folks have been doing is doping their horses with aromatase inhibitors, which are these compounds that find the aromatase and stop it from interacting with the testosterone so that that little trickle of testosterone created by the adrenal glands stays testosterone and doesn't get turned into estrogen. And that allows an overall dosage of a testosterone to go up. And it's really hard to detect because it's the horse's natural testosterone. There's nothing artificial yep. being inserted into the system to go after except the aromatase inhibitors. You could look for those, but they get urinated out within two to four days. So it's really hard to catch the cheats. And that's where Terence Ming-Wan at the racehorse laboratory in uh, Hong Kong started saying, hmm, I wonder if we could do anything to try to figure this out. And so what did he come up with? So uh, Terence Ming-Wan started questioning, well, is it possible that these aromatase inhibitors are messing with other steroids in the body? Do they alter the balance, the concentrations of other naturally produced steroids in the body in such a way that it would be detectable. So he and his colleagues worked with a whole bunch of racehorses, some of which were doped intentionally and some of which were not doped. And they looked at the naturally formed steroids in their urine over a period of time, particularly after the horses were doped on these drugs. And they found that of the 31 steroids they were looking at, seven of them changed quite noticeably. You could see that there was this signature that was quite identifiably associated with the aromatase inhibitors, such that a fingerprint was left in the steroidal mechanisms of the horse, such that they could say, okay, this horse was doped and this horse was not. And that fingerprint sticks around for up to nine days, which is a damn sight better than two to four days. So it makes it possible to now, you can look for the aromatase inhibitors initially for the first two to four days after the horse is doped, but now you can actually look all the way up to nine days and say, okay, this horse was messed with even though the drugs are no longer present. So it sounds very interesting, but it, it, if you see where the puck is headed, if we are going to fetishize the use of some sort of artificial drug with which to improve athletic performance, in this case of a horse, Ultimately, what we're going to do is we're going to be breeding horses who have a naturally higher level of testosterone and who are stronger. We actually already do this. And over time, we're just going to create super horses in a 
artificial way, but through genetic breeding rather than through an artificial way through a drug. Well, yes and no. I mean, you run into a lot of ceilings here. So, for example, erythropoietin, which is this compound in your blood that it increases the red blood cell count in your body. And there's a natural level of red blood cells that you should have. Now, there's variation in humans. Some humans have more red blood cells than others. But when your red blood cell count gets too high, eventually your heart is pumping jam. And that's going to cause you to stroke out. So you find athletes who abuse this stuff, but they're really putting themselves at terrible risk because if they go too high on their red blood cell count, yeah, sure, red blood cells carry oxygen and having more of them means you get winded less easily. You're going to do much better at endurance athletics activities. But you're also much more likely to blow a hole in your lung or blow a hole in your brain when the blood cells get clotted. So you can't put the, the levels too high. And the same thing goes with all of these other hormones. You put the levels too high, you start to suffer serious consequences. Sure, but that yet has yet to stop athletes from training in high altitudes and then taking their blood, putting it aside, and then taking the blood later. Well, yeah, but those are natural levels. We're talking about actually artificially doping yourself to the point where you create levels that are inhuman. You wouldn't be able to create them on top of Mount Everest even if you wanted to. Listen, Matt, thank you very much. Sure thing. Jason, thank you. Pleasure. That's all for Babbage. Remember, if you want to join the conversation, you can tweet us at EconSciTech, and you can find us on Facebook at The Economist. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.